Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, a number of years ago I watched the Godfather trilogy directed by Francis Ford Coppola. I had uh, read about the movies before, but I never sat down and watched them, and I wasn't disappointed. I even liked the third one, even though most critics are less enthused about it. What I appreciated most about the films, other than their intricate storyline and beautiful cinematography, uh, was the way that Coppola depicted the rise and then slow demise of the Corleone Mafia family. The Corleones built a name and an empire for themselves in America. They built that name and empire, making offers that people couldn't refuse. And by the end of the third film, the family is in ruins, and the children are suffering under the sins of their fathers. We see something similar taking place in 1 Kings 21, and at the end of the book of 1 Kings in general. The house that Omri, Omri built, that's Ahab's dad, it's beginning to crack and crumble. And Ahab's corrupt soul, with Jezebel's help, is beginning to bear bitter fruit. One day, Ahab was looking out his palace window in Jezreel, and he noticed a vineyard next to his royal courtyard. That would be a nice place for me to grow some veggies, Ahab thinks to himself. So Ahab approaches Naboth, the owner, and he makes him an offer he can't refuse. Your land is adjacent to mine, says Ahab. Let me have it. I'll give you a better vineyard in exchange, or I'll pay you whatever the land is worth. Now, from a modern Western perspective, Naboth has just hit the real estate jackpot. But from an ancient Israelite perspective, perspective, red flags are popping up everywhere here. First of all, according to Deuteronomy chapter 11, vineyards in Israel were never to be transformed into vegetable gardens. Growing vegetables was laborious work in the ancient world. The pharaohs in Egypt used to enslave their people in order to grow vegetables. In a vegetable field, every year you have to plant and harvest, and till, and refertilize, and plant, and harvest, and till, and fer over, and over, and over again. But vineyards are different. You don't have to plant a new vine every year. A healthy vine will bear fruit for 100 years. And when Israel was given the land of Canaan, the vineyards were part of the inheritance this is hard for us to understand, but from the Lord's perspective, the land of Canaan wasn't a blank slate on which Israel could build up their fortunes. It was an inheritance to receive and to steward. God didn't just give them empty fields, he gave them functioning farms. Converting a functioning vineyard to a veggie garden would be a very Egyptian thing to do and not something that would please the Lord. The other major red flag here in this text is that land in Israel was not up for sale. Recall that when God gave the land as a gift to his people, he didn't ask for payment for it. The entire thing was gift. Each tribe received a huge parcel of land, and every family in the tribe received a piece of that parcel. Israel was never to think of herself as land owners, 
They were to think of themselves, rather, as stewards of the gift. If your family was in dire straits, you could lease your land out to a neighbor. But every 50 years, that land was to be returned free of charge to the original family who had received it as their inheritance. So Naboth resists the king's offer, not because it's a bad deal. I mean, who wouldn't want a better vineyard? He resists because it would be wrong for him to sell the land God had given his family. Naboth is a righteous man, and the king doesn't like that. Dejected by Naboth's refusal to sell, Ahab returns to his palace to sulk. Woe is me, says Ahab. All I want is fresh broccoli. All I want is to be able to look out my palace window and see lettuce growing in the fields. It's, it's sort of a funny picture. The, the king crying in his royal bed, refusing to eat his royal food, all because his neighbor won't sell him their field. I'm sure Ahab had land to spare. I'm sure he had beach houses on the Mediterranean. But it's not enough. He wants what belongs to Naboth. And so in his anger, he throws himself a pity party and refuses to eat. This, I believe, gives us a little window into Ahab's soul. Emotions. We have to pay attention to our emotions. What we cry about reveals what we care about. Those who value God and God's ways, above all, they, they mourn over the reality of, of sin in their life and, and brokenness that sin has caused in the world. Blessed are those who mourn over this, says Jesus, for you will be comforted. And those who value God and God's ways, above all, they get good and angry when injustice is perpetrated and the covenant is trampled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, says Jesus, for you will be satisfied. In these cases, anger and tears, they are signs that your heart is in tune with the heart of God. But Ahab's emotional response has nothing to do with God's ways being violated. Like my three-year-old, he cries because he doesn't get his way. Three-year-olds aren't the only people to do that, I don't think, hey? Because we tend to cry about what we care about, our emotions are good indicators of what's going on inside. They expose our idols. And I wonder what causes you to sulk in bed. Say your life is oriented around the pursuit of security or pleasure. What happens to you when these things are, are threatened or taken away? How, what's your gut reaction? What comes out? Or say your life is oriented around maintaining an image or keeping up with the Joneses. What happens inside when you make a mistake that causes embarrassment or when you see your friends moving up in the world? In the Godfather films, Michael Corleone responds with revenge every time he perceives that he has been disrespected. Why? Because his idol is securing the honor of his name. We cry about what we care about, and what we care about is formed by what we worship. The root cause of Ahab's immature temper tantrum here, believe it or not, was his prior neglect 
of the temple. He was no longer orienting his life around the one who, has brought, who had brought his ancestors out of Egypt, and something else swept in to fill the void. Worship. What do you worship? Another way of asking that question is, what do you orient your life around? You know, what we do here on Sunday morning, it's not, it's not just about music and singing or listening to me talk. Music and song, listening to me talk, these are part of worship, but not the thing itself. What we do here in this sanctuary is we lift high the name of Jesus and we say that nothing can compare to him. And we tell the old, old story of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and ascension. And we encourage one another to make that central and to let that story shape our living in the world. That's worship. And when we neglect the sanctuary and don't gather to do that on a regular basis, so quickly, so quickly, other things sweep into the center of our life and we begin to orient ourselves around them. Ahab's first misstep on the long road to corruption is to downplay the temple. Enter Jezebel. When Jezebel sees her husband sulking on his bed, she is unimpressed. What is wrong with you? She says, are you a king or are you a wuss? Cheer up, old man, I'll get you your precious vineyard. Jezebel, man, she really, she's a, she's a woman of action, you might say. But what I want you to see today is simply the reality that she's a really bad influence. The epitome of a bad friend. Instead of helping Ahab move on from his pity party, she descends to his level and fans his sin into flame. Simple moral to the story here, and that is, be careful who you marry. Secondly, be careful who you let speak into your life. As I was reflecting on this, a memory from my teenage years popped into my head. I had a number of friends in high school that were uh, quite rough around the edges. I knew that they were up to no good, but I was lonely and looking for a place to belong. One night, we went out to watch a movie. My friends had snuck beer into the theater. After the film and the drinking, we went out driving. Thankfully, no one was intoxicated, but still. There were two cars in the procession. I was driving the second car. There were a few people in the first car and just me and one other person in the second car. We were driving at a good click down a single-lane country road when the person in the passenger seat next to me said, pass them. Pass them? I asked. Yeah, pass them. And so I did. And as I came up alongside the other car, the driver of that car thought, I don't want to be passed. And so he started to accelerate too. And finally, I was able to pass the other car going about 140 kilometers per hour. Why did I do it? 
I did it because I wanted the approval of my peers. And I had a friend beside me who was more than happy to fan that vulnerability into flame. You know how this goes. It's here, have another beer. Have another one, have another one. Have another one. You've had a tough day. You deserve it. Have another one. Yeah, that person's a real jerk, you know? You should, you should do something about that. You should, you should share that secret you know about them. You should ruin their reputation. That'll teach them. Come on, come on. What's, what's the harm? You only live once. You, you gotta at least try it. Don't be such a wuss. Jezebel can't make us hit the gas pedal but she can hold our hand down the wide road that leads to destruction. Sometimes Jezebel shows up in the form of a bad friend, but sometimes we, uh, we Jezebel ourselves, and we do that by listening to the lies the evil one sows in our hearts. You know how this goes too. You deserve it. Go for it. Get up and take it. You find it attractive. You deserve it. No one will know. In this story, Jezebel concocts a vicious plan to get Naboth's vineyard. She is the one who acts, but Ahab shouldn't be cleared of responsibility here. He knows what's going on. He knows that Jezebel won't get Naboth's field using virtuous means. He doesn't have the courage to take matters into his own hand, but he won't stop Jezebel either, and he gives... He gives her his royal signature. Yeah, go make it happen, honey. And it's apparent that the corruption in Israel goes much deeper than the royal family, too. Jezebel doesn't have any trouble pulling strings in Jezreel. It's not hard for her to find two scoundrels willing to bear false witness, and the elders of the city are willing participants in this murderous plan. They have lost their moral authority. And at the end of the day, Naboth, the righteous man, is charged with blasphemy and treason, and he's taken outside the city and stoned. When Ahab heard the news, he shrugged his shoulders and went out to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Little did he know that the Lord was watching, as he always does. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, recently recommissioned, back in the game. Go down and meet Ahab, the Lord said to him. Tell him that I saw what he did. Tell him that disaster is coming to his house. Tell him that dogs will lick up his blood in the same place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood. Tell him also that Jezebel will be devoured by dogs by the walls of Jezreel. I'm thinking that this couldn't have been an easy word for Elijah to share to the royal family. He's well aware of what Ahab and Jezebel are capable of. But having been recently recommissioned, he's ready to speak and fulfill his office as prophet. It's a hard word that he has to bring, graceless really, just sheer judgment. Basically, what the Lord is saying here is that there is a day of reckoning on the horizon for Ahab and his family. Ahab won't be buried with his fathers. His sons won't take over the throne. The dogs will lick up his blood, and the birds of the air will feast 
on his family. And yet, though it is bad news, it is still a means of grace for Ahab. The Lord speaks to him through the prophet. And when he hears God's word, it impacts him, surprisingly, in a big way. You know, talking about judgment, not something I enjoy doing, not something you enjoy hearing about very often, about that day of reckoning that's on the horizon. It's the prophetic call that most of us would like to ignore. But what, in the end, and we have to be careful, obviously, about doing this, but what, in the end, could be more loving than gently warning people that there is a wide road that leads to destruction and that one day justice will be done? God sees Speaking a hard word is rarely enjoyable, and it shouldn't be enjoyable. But it could be the means that God uses to turn someone around, to warn them that life matters, and that what happens in this world that God sees, and he will not let it go unpunished. If Jezebel is the epitome of a bad friend in this passage, then I think Elijah plays the role of a good friend here. Ahab calls Elijah his enemy, but at the end of the day, who, has the better, who is the better influence on Ahab? The woman who fans his temptation into sin, or the man who has the courage to name the sin and warn him of the coming consequences? When I prepare people to become members at our church here at Victoria CRC, I have, I have them read a short little article called, Why Join a Church, written by David Mathis. Mathis nicely highlights all the relevant points in scripture passages in his article. His last point is particularly good, I think, and certainly relevant to this little exchange between Elijah and Ahab. Why commit to a church? Here's Mathis' last point. And I think this is quite brilliant. In a good church covenant, we yoke ourselves to accountability while we're in our right minds in case someday sin gets a foothold in our hearts and blinds us to the truth. And then he goes on to talk about church discipline. Church discipline is hard, but so good. The purpose is always restoration. And God often has been pleased to use this difficult means to pour out his striking grace. And then Mathis quotes from James 5. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Look, I don't don't know about you, but I know that this heart is prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. And sin is so deceptive, so deceptive, We come up with reasons to justify what we're doing, and those reasons are so convincing to us. We look for people who who will nod their heads in in agreement and confirm us on this journey towards destruction. Those people are generally easy to find. And because this heart is prone to wander, and because sin is so deceptive, I need you 
to be a true friend to me. I need to commit myself to you while I'm in my right mind so that one day if I'm out of my mind and deceived by sin, you'll be there to call me back. Will you have the courage to speak lovingly and truthfully to me and not leave me to my own devices when I get angry or defensive? And will you let me do the same for you? Here at church, we make that covenant together. We commit ourselves to being real friends in the fellowship of Jesus. And the stakes are high. Life is not a game. I'm thinking again of the Godfather movie and how it ends. It ends on the steps of a theater. A bullet that's meant for Michael Corleone hits his daughter and she dies. The sins of the fathers, the judgment on the next generation. It's a terrible ending. And I'm wondering back at the beginning when Michael was starting to enter the life of crime, he probably didn't know it was going to end the way it did. But imagine there would have been a true friend, someone who saw what was happening, who would have stepped in and said, look, you enter this life and you do not know where it's going to go. Imagine someone had the courage to do that. Stakes are high. Life is not a game. The fruit of Jezebel's friendship it leads to further corruption. The fruit of true friendship it produces Humility, repentance, and a delay in judgment. Look at Ahab. I mean, I think we just need to take a moment to admire. I mean, there's almost this juxtaposition that happens in the text. On the one hand, the text says there has never been a more evil person in all of history than this man Ahab. And then right after that, we see Ahab repenting dressing up in sackcloth, sackcloth as in ashes and walking about meekly. It's quite amazing. The Lord sees what Ahab has done and, and his response in this moment is to delay punishment. This may not seem like much grace shown on God's part, but it's not nothing either. It is a mercy to be given more time. I'm sure that many in Israel, the 7,000 faithful, wish that God wouldn't have delayed. They had suffered under Ahab and Jezebel enough, but, in, but God, in response to Ahab's humility, relents for a time and shows him mercy. And I think the whole scene really points ahead to that greater display of God's mercy, to the time when God would pour out his grace, not just for a few years, but for all time. Jesus, the righteous one, entered into, fully into this corrupt and broken world. And as the prince of the king of heaven, he was the rightful heir of every vineyard on planet earth. He came to his father's vineyard. The tenants had put all the previous messengers to death. And now here comes the son. Jesus judged the tenants. He overturned the tables in the temple and spoke truth to the religious leaders and to everyone who would listen. He warned them clearly about the coming day of reckoning, that day of justice on the horizon. And yet, he did so much more than proclaim that message. He came not as a cold judge. He came as a true friend. And in the end, out of friendship, 
He laid down his life for the sake of his friends. Like righteous Naboth, Jesus was falsely accused. Like Naboth, he was convicted of blasphemy blasphemy and treason and taken outside of the city to be put to death. But unlike Naboth, Jesus went willingly. He knew it was the path he had to walk to truly love the ones God had sent him to serve. All the corruption on earth, every sin on him was laid, and the full justice of God fell on the righteous one, that we might be forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, given the inheritance of the land. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus once said, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And still he pursues us, He's zealous for our wholeness, an enemy to the sin that lingers within, but a true friend to the image of God that lies beneath the dirt. Will you let him in? He may feel like an enemy at first, but he does not come to destroy or to steal, but only to give life. The best friend in the world is knocking on the door of your heart. Let him in. Amen.